Father, thank you again for this grace, this gift to gather as your church. Father, we want to grow in our relationship with you. We want to grow in our relationship with Jesus. We want to grow in our relationship with the Holy Spirit. We want to know the triune God who is. Father, Jesus told us in his high priestly prayer in John 17 that eternal life is to know you and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And how can we get to know you if we are not hearing from you and speaking to you? So, Father, I pray that you would grip our hearts in these moments together. Father, would you convict us where we need convicted? Would you encourage us where we need encouraged? Would you lift us up off the ground if we're laying on the ground? Father, would you create life out of death if there is spiritual death in this room? Only you can do that by your spirit, Father. So move, we pray. Do more than we can ask or imagine. And it's in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. So we are in Matthew chapter 6, 5 to 8. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, launches into prayer. And keep in mind, before I read the text, last week he talked about doing your good works, giving and doing good works in front of people in order to be seen by them that you might receive the praise of men. And so last week was about motives. Why do you do the things you do? Why do you not do the things you should do? Motives. And Jesus continuing talking about motives moves motives into prayer and then launches into the Lord's Prayer, which we will pick up next week. Matthew 6, 5 to 8. Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Christians pray. It's not just a command. It's almost the first breath after you are spiritually alive. In fact, often it's the means in the moment that God makes you spiritually alive, you're communing with him in prayer and you're asking for his forgiveness and you're seeing that you are in darkness and you need light. You're seeing that you're in your sin and you need forgiven and you're asking him for mercy perhaps in a prayer. And in that moment, often, God makes you alive. Live, he says. And, and your first breath is prayer. You see, prayer is just talking to God as I'm talking to you. And God talks back to us. The most clear way he talks to us is how? In his word. It's solid. You can't change it. We always ask the question, God, what is your will? God, I want to hear from you. And he says, I gave you a massive book that's loaded with clarity. You want my will? It's 66 books long. Very clear. And so God speaks to us in his word, and we speak back to him in response to his word. Now, does God speak to us through others? Of course. Does God give us impressions? Of course he does. But listen, the impressions always have to line up with the word, and if they don't, the impression is not from God. Amen. Could be from a spirit and from a spiritual source, but certainly not from God. There are men who do hear from spirits that are not good spirits. And so John tells us in his letter, 1 John, test the spirits, right? How do we test the spirits? We have the word. And we check everything with the word. And if it's out of line, it's out of line. Luther helps us. He wrote a letter to his barber. Maybe some of you have read that letter to his barber. And it's called simply um, A Simple Way to Pray. And he starts this way. He says, It's a good thing to let prayer be the first business of the morning and the last at night. 
How many of you pray in the morning and, and at night? A few of you. Okay. I want to see more hands next week in response to that question. Okay. Here's Luther. It's a good thing to let prayer be the first business, first business of the morning and the last at night. So you speak to God on first consciousness and the last consciousness. Guard yourself carefully against those false, deluding ideas which tell you, wait a little while. Wait a little while. I will pray in an hour. First, I must attend to this or that. First, I must attend to this or that. I'll get to prayer, but first, I got to do this or that. Such thoughts, Luther says, get you away from prayer into other affairs which so hold your attention and involve you that nothing comes of prayer for that day. And that's most of our experience, isn't it? We're like, I'll pray, just not right now. And then one o'clock rolls around. And you're like, I'll pray, but just not right now. And then five o'clock rolls around. And you're like, I'll pray, but just not right now. And then it's nine o'clock and you are so beat that you intend to pray. But you say, our Father. And, and what happened to prayer? Well, you put it off. And you put it off. And you put it off. And your intentions were good. They were. You did intend to pray, but you didn't. And so Luther says, he's helping us here. He says, make it the first thing when you come into consciousness. Make it the last thing when you're going out of consciousness into subconsciousness. He helps us. And Jesus says, when you pray, he gives us some instruction. You must not be like the hypocrites. Hypocrites, that's a word from theater. And in Jesus' day, uh, no Angelina Jolie or Brad Pitt, uh, they would wear masks that would portray the character they were playing. And oftentimes, the same actor would play many different roles. Kind of like old school Eddie Murphy. Hercules, Hercules, remember that? <laughs> the hypocrites, that, it's a word from theater. And it means to put a mask on. It means to pretend you're something you're not. You see, we, our culture, and this is a good thing, I like this about our culture, we're obsessed with the real, the authentic. Like, we don't want the fake. If someone's a facade, thumbs down. We don't want that. We want real. We want to see the real you. We're always evaluating. Is that the real you? And so, we're really, we're looking into motives and wondering if the people who we see are really them, aren't we? And that's kind of the air we breathe. And Jesus says... When you pray, be authentic. This is very culturally relevant. He's saying, don't be a hypocrite. Don't be fake. Be real. Don't pretend. And what does a hypocrite do? Well, in Jesus' day, he, he says, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. They just love to be in front of people praying so that you would see them and hear them and why would they do that? Well, Jesus says that they may be seen of others. They, they love the praise of men. It's the same issue from last week. Doing your good works in front of others so that you may be seen by men. That they would praise you. That they would think highly of you. That they would think you're super spiritual. And you love that. Don't be like that, Jesus is saying. Be real. Be authentic. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't pray to be seen by others, Jesus is saying. So again, Jesus is the man of Proverbs 5.20. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. You see, sometimes we don't even know why we're doing what we're doing. And Jesus is here helping us, saying, if you love to pray in front of people so that they may see you and think highly of you, he's saying, don't. Why? Well, same reason as last week. I say to you, they have received their reward. You want to be seen by men? You want to be seen by women? You want to be thought highly of because of your fantastic prayers publicly? There's your reward. You got it, but no more. And you're a hypocrite, he's saying. They love to be seen by others. So here's the real deal. These kind of prayers, listen to this. They don't love God and want to thank him 
or seek him or feel great need and ask him for help or they don't see their need for grace and ask him for forgiveness. They don't seek his power. They don't seek his presence. What do they seek? They seek to be seen by other people. So this isn't even real prayer, is it? It's a performance. This isn't even connecting with God. This is is hypocritical. And so Jesus is saying, when you pray... Be real. Don't worry about who's around you. Now, now some of us, I remember back to when I was a very new Christian. And, and we would pray publicly in a group, in a, in a Sunday school class, in a small group. And I would imagine, what am I going to pray before I pray it? You know what I'm talking about? That back in the day, not currently. Only one person, okay. So you rehearse the prayer in your head. You're like, this is how I'm going to pray. And you, and you practice it. And you're worried about what everyone else around you is going to think about your prayer. Right? Now that's the flip side often. That's you're afraid to sound like a terrible prayer. And so you don't want to publicize your prayers because you don't want other people to think lowly of you. But that's a real thing. But listen, if prayer is authentic, it's just talking to God. So who cares who's listening? In one sense, talk to God. I'm not talking about in a a discipleship context. I think that there is real discipleship in praying publicly and helping others to grow in their prayer. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you caring so much about what other people think of your prayers that you're terrified to pray or you won't pray at all. You're thinking, so, so why are you like that? Jesus is helping you. He's saying you're too concerned about being seen and what you will be seen to be. Just pray, just talk to God. Because that's all it is. It's just talking to God. Spurgeon says this about these people. These religionists, you like that? Religionists. It's a good Spurgeon word. These religionists were not seekers of God, but seekers after popularity. Hmm. Men who twisted even devotion into a means of self-aggrandizement. Aggrandizement's a big word. It means simply this to enhance the reputation of someone beyond what is justified by the facts. Self-aggrandizement is you trying to enhance your own reputation to others beyond what is justified by the facts. Do we do that? Do we try to self-aggrandize? I wonder if much of our posting online is self-aggrandizement. I wonder. I don't know. I'm just wondering. Spurgeon says it's self-aggrandizement. He says these kinds of people are not truly... I'm sorry, this this is me. (laughs) These kinds of people are not truly connecting to God in prayer, nor do they really care if God even hears them. They want men and women to see them and think highly of them. They're not even connecting to God. There's no real prayer happening. It's fake. It's a facade. Spurgeon continues. He says, They choose places and times which would render their sayings of prayer conspicuous. Conspicuous means to stand out. So they pick specific times and places so that their prayers stand out to everybody. The synagogues and the corners of the streets suited them admirably. For their aim was that they may be seen of men. They were seen. And they had what they sought for. This was their reward and the whole of it. To me, that's not a good enough reward to be seen by you or anyone else and to be thought highly of. I I want the Lord's reward. I want his presence. I want him to move in my life and in the lives of others. Don't you want to connect with the living God who is who spoke and out of nothing came all things, and who says, come to me. Knock and the door will be open. Seek and you'll find. Ask and you'll receive. Don't you want to connect with that being who loves you so much that he sent his own son for you? I mean, the proof of his love for you is that he sent his own son. The proof that Jesus loves you is that he was willing to come for you in your mess. Not when you cleaned up. But when you were a wreck, he said, I'll take you. 
Verse 6. But when you pray, now he's going to tell us what we should do. Okay? So when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. Now, the old King James has closet. You remember this word, go into your closet and pray. Literally, the word means inner room or storehouse. And so the point is, if this is your thing, then you should probably go and pray by yourself. Alone. Lock the door. But it doesn't always have to mean pray by yourself. Because, as we'll see next week, our Father. It's not your Father. It's our Father. And if we want to just take a quick, which we will right now, look at the beginning of the book of Acts, we don't see much of any private brain. Let me read to you Acts chapter 1, 12 to 15. This is right after the ascension. They're walking back. And what do they do? The apostles, the disciples. They return to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter, John, and James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, son of James. All these, with one accord, listen, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brother, brothers, that's Jude and James, And in those days, Peter stood up among them. Listen to this. The company of persons was about 120 and said. So these 120 were together, and what were they doing? They were praying. And what happened when the church gathered together to pray? Well, the first thing that happens in Acts chapter 1 is they find Judas' replacement, Matthias. The Holy Spirit says this is the man to replace Judas. And then in Acts chapter 2, we find the same thing. Acts 2.1, the day of Pentecost arrived when they were all together in one place. What do you think they were doing? They were praying. And what happened? The Holy Spirit showed up. One more. Just one more quick place. Acts 4.23 and 24. You remember Peter and John had healed a man who was begging at the gate. And everyone knew this man because he was always at the gate begging. And now he's walking, he's, he's on Peter and James' arm, and they're like, this is, this is a notable miracle. And so they tell Peter and John, uh, the Sanhedrin, the rulers, stop, stop preaching in this name. Stop telling people about this Jesus. And they say, well, you, you decide whether it's right to obey God or man. And they come back from that being rebuked, and here's what happens. When they were released, this is Acts 4, 23 and 24, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said. Lifted their voices together to God and said. And so Jesus is, yes, saying here, if you're this hypocrite and you want to be seen by others and you're super worried about that, you do need to go and shut the door. And pray to your father who is in secret. And then what will happen for you? Well, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now think about this. No one's there, right? It's just you in secret. Wrong. Who's there with you? God. It's you and God. In the room together. That's incredible to think about. Often we think of prayer as this ritual, this thing that Christians do, or this thing I should do but don't really want to do, this thing that's hard to do, and it is hard to do. But it's you and God in the secret, man. That's crazy if you think about that. Anytime, anywhere, for anything, come into his presence. Seven and eight. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. So he's given us some more help in prayer here. He says, don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do. Gentiles were non-Jews. And so this would have been um, 
worshippers of demon gods. Because any worship of any god other than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is a demon. And so the pagans, to get the attention of what Paul says are no gods, but are empowered by demonic forces, they, they repeat phrases over and over and over, mantras and repeating ready-made prayers, if you will. And he says, don't heap up empty phrases, meaningless repetitions. And, and, and prayers could become that, right? Just meaningless words. And, and if I confess, which I am about to publicly right now, if I confess, there are a lot of times when I go to pray and I'm by myself and I'm praying and then all of a sudden I am thinking about this, that, and the other and prayer has gone out the window. And then I got to bring myself back and then I begin to pray again and all of a sudden I'm thinking about who I got to call and then I got to bring myself back and then I'm thinking about anyone there? It's hard to pray. I would say this is one of the hardest if you will, spiritual disciplines that the Lord has given us. Because we're in such a distracted age, day, culture. Like, how many of you notice how many times you look at your phone? Like, sometimes when I meet with some of you, I purposefully will put my phone down so I can't see if someone's texting me or something, and then I'll watch to see how many times you look at your phone. Sometimes it's 50. Like, you just... Or you pick it up and you, and you remember you're talking to me and you put it down. And, like, what are you doing? It's habit. You can't help but check it every couple seconds. And, and, and you expect, as you flip through picture after picture after post after post after post after pin after pin after pin, you don't think that you sit down quiet and try to concentrate for 10 minutes and it's going to be easy? We live in the day of soundbite sermons. Let's take the best three minutes and let's put that on YouTube. And oh man, that was fantastic. Let's see you pray for 10 minutes straight without getting distracted. Let's see you ride in the car and just be in God's presence. Father, I want you to be here with me. I'm going I'm to listen to your word on my YouVersion app. You know, it, it can play the Bible for you. You know that, right? You need to be listening to the Bible too. And, and, and I'm just going to be in your presence, and I'm going to turn off the radio. And how difficult it is to focus on the Lord or focus on his word or stay focused. Anyone else? Am I just the only one here? This is almost impossible. We need help. We need help. Don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. So, so I think the help for us is we're, we're not so much heaping up empty phrases, but we pray prayerless prayers. We pray in a way that means nothing. Amen? Because we're distracted. Like we, we may be praying, but then we're thinking about seven other things. And so it's, it's empty. It doesn't mean anything. Prayerless prayers. Empty prayers. And he says that the Gentiles think this. So let's not think this, guys. Let's not think that we will be heard for our many words. Did you know that some of the most authentic prayers in the Bible are very, very short? And they're very authentic. And they powerfully are, are, are moving of the hand of God. It doesn't have to be this long, drawn-out thing, but it could and should be, too. Connecting with God is connecting with God, whether it's for five minutes or an hour. Do not be like them, verse 8. For your father, your father, knows what you need before you ask him. You know, we have a problem with this verse 8. We think if God knows what I need before I ask him, then why should I even pray? Right? Come on, let's be honest. Our logic, our way of thinking says, if God knows what I need when I ask him, and he said, don't, don't fill up prayers with words, then why do I even pray if he knows what I need before I ask him? Like, that's dumb. Like, why pray then? Well, the first thing you need to think about is prayer is not just about asking God for stuff. It's about seeking his face. 
And if you're just seeking his hand, you're missing out. Now, God is gracious to us because sometimes when we're new Christians or we're just brand new to this prayer thing, all we do is seek his hand. And to encourage us in our praying, he graciously gives us what we've asked for. But we need to move from only seeking his hand to also seeking his face. And that's what these next weeks are going to be together. We're going to learn how to seek God's face together. His presence, Him, God. Now, let's address this objection. Let's address this. If God knows what we will ask before we ask Him, then why should we pray? Really, this is a sovereignty versus human responsibility kind of question. And since the text brings it up, we should look at it. I think it's appropriate. And so, James, in his letter says this in James 4 2 he says you do not have why because you do not ask Hmm. so James says you don't have you know why because you didn't ask John Piper commenting on that verse amazingly says if you had prayed the universe would be different you don't have because you don't ask If you had prayed, the universe would have been different. That's amazing. And here's what we need to ask. How does God's sovereignty relate to prayer? Well, we need to pray according to God's will, right? That's clear. So here's the question. Some questions that you you ask, okay? Do I change God's mind when I pray? Did you ever ask that? Do I change God's mind when I pray? If more people pray about the same thing at the same time, is God more inclined to answer that prayer? So, so if there's more Atlanta fans praying right now versus the New England fans, will Atlanta win? I don't know. It's a good question, though. Do I change God's mind? So here's a question we ask. If I believed more strongly, or if I had more faith in what I'm asking for, would God answer my prayer? Ever wonder that? In other words, God's not answering my prayer because ye have little faith, King James. You ever ask that? How does that relate to God's sovereignty? So he'll ask, if the faith level is from zero to ten, if I'm at an eight, he's like, get it up to nine, come on. Get it up to nine. Like you hit that thing, boom, nine, answered. You, you, you got the prayer bell up to nine, it rung, boom, answer. And so you got these people walking around with this amazing faith, hitting nines every time, hitting tens every time, and, and they just get all their prayer answers. But you, when you pray, you, you just get one, two, one and a half. Is that how it works? Some of us wonder, though, don't, don't we? Is that what it is? Is it, is it that I don't have enough faith for my prayer to be answered? You see, all these questions come from not taking the whole of Scripture and applying it to prayer. All these questions come from taking one one passage and isolating it. So taking one text out of the larger text, isolating it, we get, we get all these questions. And they're legitimate questions. But when we take the whole of the scriptures and apply it to this question, we get helped. So James, again, in 1, 6 to 8, says this, Let him ask in faith, not doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Well, that seems to say that if I don't believe when I ask, then I'm not going to get an answer. And that's true. Like, if you're empty word praying, if you're praying prayerless prayers, God's not going to answer that. If you don't ask at all, he's not going to answer that either. But, but here's what this means. You see, ripping this out of context like I just did will make it seem like if I pray and don't doubt, I'll get an answer. But you got to 
back up and see what was James just talking about. And he was talking about being in the middle of a trial, being in the middle of suffering. And in the midst of that suffering, asking God for wisdom. And the promise is when you ask for wisdom in the middle of a trial, God's going to give that generously. He's going to show up and he's going to give you the wisdom you need and he's going to give you the endurance to endure the trial. But when you ask, see, when you ask for that wisdom, believing that promise, that's called faith. When you're in a trial, you ask for wisdom and you believe that what he just said he will do. So you ask in faith, listen, based on the promise, not on your faith. See, here's the difference. Do we have faith in faith or do we have faith in the promises of God? That's the question. So the question that we ask, if I have enough faith, will my prayer be answered? That that is an inward-looking view of faith. Faith has an object, and it's not you. The object of faith is the Word of God, Jesus Christ Himself, the Holy Spirit, the Father. And when it's directed at a clear, undisputed promise in Scripture, you Aim your faith at that promise and you believe. It's that simple. But we're not talking about faith in faith, which is what we often think is meant by that. If I just have enough faith, if I can hit the thing at the fair and it gets all the way up to the bell, I have enough faith, my prayer will be answered. That's, not, that, that's you having faith in your faith. That's a wrong view of faith. Faith always has an object. And the object has to be grounded in the word. Now, secondly, we need to remember this. When we pray, we must always pray according to God's will. James, again, he says in 4.14 and 15, You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? So this is the context is you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You're limited. You have no idea what's going on. And so what does he say? What is your life? You are a mist, a mist, M-I-S-T, steam on your coffee, steam on your hot tea, your breath on a cold day. That's you. You're a mist. You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That's pointing to your small, limited, tiny perspective in your lifespan compared to eternity. You're a mist. Your breath, boom, you're gone. Compared to eternity, that's you, that's me. James has given us perspective. That's real. It's not just strong language. That's the real thing. Endless past, endless future, your life, breath. Your breath. And so you're very limited. And so what does he say about that? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live or do this or that. This points to God's sovereignty over your life, like you living tomorrow, because the context says you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What's your life? That means you could die tomorrow. I could die tomorrow. You're a mist. So if God wills, you'll live tomorrow and do this or that, that this and that is everything you do in your life. So if God wills, you're going to live tomorrow. If God wills, you're going to do this or that tomorrow or tonight. Now, If that's frightening to you, you have a view of God that needs to change. Because if you're a Christian, you're in Christ. That means he has paid for your sins. He has lived perfectly in your place. You have safety in him. And so to be outside of Christ and to be in control of your own life, which is a facade, but most people believe that, that is the most frightening reality in the world. But for you to be in Christ, connected to him, his life, given to you as a gift. His death on the cross, paying for your sins, that's safety. So even if you do die tomorrow, death is a gift. Because instantly, the second of death is the second of life. And you're with God. And the fullness of joy at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And he's going to recreate this earth. My daughter loves to say it like this. She says, when we'll have nice sharks... When I can swim with the sharks. So, that's when, so when she thinks new heavens, new earth, she thinks nice sharks. She thinks alligators that she'll be able to saddle up and ride without fear of being eaten. And if you think that's so far from the truth, remember Isaiah's prophecy, the little child will stick his hand in the viper's hold and will not be harmed. 
So it's not so far from the truth. She may be more onto it than we are. Swimming with the sharks. And I always go a little deeper with her. I'm like, you know that you're going to grab onto their back and they're going to take you deep into the bottom of the ocean. And maybe you'll be able to breathe underwater. And you can just see her eyes light up. And then to Megan and I's horror, she's like, I want to die and go be with God. <laughs> she says it all the time. And we're like, we know you're a breath, but stop saying that. Okay? Chill. We want you around a little longer. But see, her view of God is, I want to be with God. If that verse frightens you, if the Lord wills, we'll live. If that frightens you, you need childlike faith. That God is your Father, and it would be great to be with Him. And at His right hand is pleasures forevermore. One brother in here has a very dangerous job. And when I talk to him, I'm like, bro, are you, you cool with that? Like, you go into massive danger every day for your hourly wage. And he's like, man, the best thing they could do to me is kill me. That's awesome. It's a great perspective of life and death, isn't it? And so James says, if the Lord wills, we'll live and do this or that. Roger Nicole uh, is a theologian. He's, he's dead now, but fantastic theologian. And he wrote on prayer. And this, listen, is really clarifying. So I want you to listen closely. It's not complicated language, but very helpful for this question. If God knows what I'm going to ask, why should I ask? Roger Nicole says, do you think that we really change the mind of God. So he's talking about praying. He says, do you think that when we pray, we actually change God's mind? Is that what you think prayer is? God has this thing he's doing, this way of doing uh, his will in the world, and when you pray, you change his mind. Is that how you see prayer? Do you really think that you can change the mind of God? That is, Can prayer make God modify his sovereign plan? There are people who feel that unless they are prepared to say this, there is no great value in prayer. I do not know what the reader's particular idea on this subject may be. You're the listener. He's writing this to be read. But I would like to say that if you believe you can change the mind of God through prayer, I hope you are using some discretion. If that is the power you have, it is certainly a most dangerous thing. Surely God does not need our counsel in order to set up what is desirable. Surely God, whose knowledge penetrates all minds and hearts, does not need to have us intervene to tell him what he ought to do. Do you view prayer like that? Like, I'm going to tell God what needs to get done. I'm going to come into his presence and I'm going to be like, God, you need to do this. You need to change that. You need to move here because your wisdom is greater than his. And what he's doing is far less than what you would be doing. That's the question. So Roger Nicole continues. He says, the thought that we are changing the mind of God by our prayer is a terrifying concept. I will be frank to confess that if I really thought I could change the mind of God by praying, I would abstain. He says, I wouldn't pray at all. I would have to say, how can I presume with the limits of my own mind and the corruptions of my own heart, how can I presume to interfere with the counsels of the Almighty? It is almost as if you were interested as if you introduce somebody who is utterly ignorant of of electronics to a weapons plant in which by pushing certain buttons, one might precipitate an explosion. You say, go ahead, push buttons. One might, go ahead, push buttons, never mind what happens. Oh no, there is comfort for the child of God in being assured that our prayers will not change God's mind. This is not what is involved in prayer, and we are not in danger of precipitating explosions by some rash desire on our part. But then people say, if you cannot change God's mind, what is the point of praying? If prayer does not change things, prayer is worthless. Here, you have perhaps noticed that I've changed the formula. I did not say change the mind of God, but change things. 
There's the difference. Prayer does not change the mind of God, but prayer definitely changes things. What do you mean? Well, he continues. I never said that prayer does not change things. Prayer does change things, but it does not change the mind of God. The reason prayer changes things, but does not change God, is that he has appointed prayer as an effectual means for accomplishing his own purposes. This effectual means prayer is how God does what he's going to do in the world. That's a means. It's If I'm speaking to you and I need amplification, this microphone and that speaker is the means for my amplification. Prayer is God's means to accomplish his will. That's what he's saying. The reason prayer changes things but does not change God is that he has appointed prayer as an effectual means for accomplishing his own purposes. This effectual means is essential for this accomplishment. Essential for this accomplishment. When we have a right understanding of the sovereignty of God, we recognize that God has established a plan in which not only the effects, but also the causes are ordained. Do you hear that? So it's not just that the effects are set, what will happen in reality, but what causes those effects are also ordained by God. And so Piper was right. Had you prayed the universe would have been different. Because God uses your prayers to accomplish his will. But you don't change his mind. He simply ordained that you would pray what you would pray to accomplish his will. That's not too hard to understand, is it? But that has to be the answer. In 1 John 5, 14 and 15, 1 John tells us this. He says, this is the confidence we have. So what's confidence? It's, I know this is going down. I have great confidence. I can stand here solidly. Confidence. This is the confidence we have. What is it? The confidence that we have towards him is that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That's the confidence we have in prayer. See, the confidence we have in prayer is that when we ask whatever we ask and it lines up with his will, it's going to happen. So what about the prayers we pray that don't line up with his will? They don't happen. And, and thank God. Because if you had that kind of power to change reality, oh my goodness. Because haven't your desires changed as you've grown? I mean, what you wanted five years ago, don't you know now that that would have utterly destroyed you if you got it? The very thing you were praying for and wanted so bad, and God, why won't you answer me? Now you look at where you're at and you're like, oh my goodness. What happened? You grew. You, your perspective got bigger. You, you, you matured. Now imagine God who knows all things, past, present, and future, and doesn't just know them, somehow, mysteriously, he's there. Do you really want to change God's mind and change his purpose for the universe with prayer? No. But listen, this is, this is the confidence we have, that when we pray according to his will, we have what we ask. That's encouraging. That's an encouragement to ask, and you'll receive. Knock, and the door will be open. Seek, and you'll find. We ask according to his will. And verse 15, John says, And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know. Hear the know? We know. Confident assurance. We know this. We know that we have the request that we have asked of him. And so here's what we need to do with prayer, especially in the Bible. We can't isolate one text and build a prayer theology off it. That's bad, ready for a big word, hermeneutics. Hermeneutics simply means the art and science of biblical interpretation. How do we interpret the scriptures? We put one text in the context of the book itself, the surrounding verses. I mean, I showed you earlier, I ripped that verse out of context in James, and it looked like if your faith is great, you'll have what you ask. But see, it was ripped out of context. It was in the context of a promise that if you have faith that that promise is true and you pray according to the comment, promise, <laughs> he'll answer. 
Now, you take a greater context, which is the whole Bible itself. Now let's apply every verse on prayer and build a theology off that. Not one verse ripped out of a book, ripped out of the Bible. That's how we get in big trouble, guys. That's how cults are built. That's how Jehovah's Witnesses thrive. By ripping texts out of context. The book itself, the surrounding chapters, and the the whole Bible. And so we know we have what we asked of him if we ask according to his will. If he has a promise that he's revealed, listen, that's his will. You don't have to ask God, what is your will? He's clearly revealed it in the Bible. He wants to give you wisdom. And he says, if you ask, I'm going to give it. So you ask. Confident in the promise. Your faith is directed at what he said. So, so let's take a, a, an example from the scriptures. You have this centurion, and, and his son or his soldier is sick, I can't remember. But he comes to him and he says, I am a man of authority, and I have people under me. And when I say to this one, go, he goes. And when I say to this one, come, he comes. So if you will just speak the word, I know that you'll have what you ask. And see, what was his confidence? Was his confidence, man, I believe Jesus can do this so much That when I ask him, my faith is so great, he will have to answer my prayer. No. Did you hear his confidence? His confidence was, I know all about authority. Because I am a man also under authority. And when I say to this one, come, because I have authority, he has to come. And when I say to this one, go, because I have authority, he says, go. So if you who has authority says, it'll be done. And Jesus says, I've not seen such great faith in all of Israel. What was the faith in? His faith? Or the one who has authority. You see the difference? And he wasn't saying, because I'm asking you and because I believe so much, I know that you'll answer. No, he says, if you will say the word, if you will. I know that if you say this because you have the authority to do it, it's going to happen. And he says it and it happens. And Jesus says, I've not seen such great faith. Faith in faith or faith in Jesus who can accomplish his will through prayer. That's the question. You see, we make a mess of prayer when we're biblically illiterate. Now listen, when we start out as new Christians, we have an excuse. Okay, so I'm not knocking any of you in here who are new Christians or non-Christians. You have an excuse. But this message is for you. Now you know. God has given you the gift of this message to know now that when we have Asked him, if he wills, he will answer. And listen, if he doesn't answer, he has a really good reason why he hasn't. He might be saying, wait, you don't know what's coming. Give it a year. Give it five years. Listen, I've been praying for things sometimes for years and years and years. And then it happens and I'm like, oh my gosh, I've been praying for that for years. And it was the right time for him to answer. But see, our problem is we want what we want when we want it. Isn't that the case? Like, God, do it now, yesterday. That's the problem. So so we ask, we have faith that he can if he wills, and then we wait. We wait for his promise that he will answer. And listen, is no an answer? It's an answer. So God always answers. It's just sometimes no. And for good reason. He has a massive plan that we have no idea about. Listen, I ask God for things all the time, and he says no all the time. And I'm either going to say, throw prayer out the window, or I'm going to say, God, you know better than me. And and listen, the better choice is, God, you know better than me. Because if I got what I want when I want it, you know that that would probably be for my harm. And so I'm going to trust you that you know best. And so what do you do? You redirect your faith at him and his sovereignty and his wisdom and his control. And you say, you know better than me. And all of a sudden your heart can rest. If your heart can't rest because God won't answer your prayers, if you're raging at him because he won't answer, maybe that's for you. He knows best. He has a massive plan that he's working out. And Tim Keller said this. We don't, and I'm going to paraphrase here, but he said, we, we don't always know what God's doing. And we don't like where we're at. And we may be praying to get out of wherever we're at. 
But Tim Keller says this, if we knew as much as God knows, we would want it exactly how it is. If we knew everything that God knows, we would want it exactly how it is. And see, the issue is perspective. We just don't know everything that God knows. All right, let's finish this up. So if we ask according to his will, he hears us. One more time, Roger Nicole. He says, some people say that kind of prayer is not really effective if you ask according to his will. Like, have you heard you need to pray in faith and you just need to believe and don't say if you will. You ever hear anyone say that? I've heard that. Like, man, that's not believing prayer. So Nicole addresses that. He says, he says, Some people say that kind of prayer is not really effective. If you start by saying, if it be your will, or if you end with, if it be your will, you are attempting to give God an out in case he is not going to do it. You are not believing. That is not the point at all. We do not give to God an out. God does not need an out. What we are saying when we say, if it is your will, is articulating the principle that we are not telling God what should be done, but are actually identifying with his purpose and asking to work together with him in the, full, in the fulfillment of that purpose. Do you see the difference? One is our purpose, my will shall be done. Like we're going to see in a couple weeks, Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come your will be done. But often we pray, my kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we don't want to pray if it be your will. Because we want our will, don't we? It's really what it comes down to. Jesus wrestles with this very thing. Did you know that? That Jesus wrestles with this very question of God's will and his purposes and Jesus' will, and what Jesus wanted. Do you remember where? That's right. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus knows what's about to go down. This is the king of all creation, of which John tells us in the first chapter of his gospel, without him nothing was made that has been made. And he's wrestling with his father's will, and he says this, in Luke 22, 41 to 42, he withdrew from them, that's the apostles, about a stone's throw. He knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Night, guys. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So this is, so, so, so let's imagine real quick. Let's imagine real quick. You with me still? You with me? Okay, I'm almost done. Like two minutes, please. That really means five or ten, but that's a little trick that preachers do. I'm almost done, two minutes. And then you're like, man, it's been ten minutes, bro. Five minutes at max. Okay, ready? Focus, focus, Okay. Jesus is in the garden. He's the king of all creation. Do you think that if anyone had greater faith than Jesus Christ, who is he? Who is she? So if faith operated on the strength, or I'm sorry, if answers to prayer operated on the strength of your faith, wouldn't Jesus' prayer get answered? And so he prays, let this cup pass. If it was according to faith, that cup would have immediately passed. Because who has greater faith than Jesus Christ? But see, that prayer didn't get answered, did it? And he qualified the prayer. He said, my desire is to not be under your wrath, because that's what the cup means. He said, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to be under your wrath. I don't want to receive the payment for the sins of all those who will ever believe in me, past, present, and future. As Piper said, how can it be that one man in a matter of hours could soak up the wrath that would have taken an eternity to pour out on me? How can that be? Do you want that cup? 
One, we can't handle that cup. Only an infinite God can receive an infinite punishment. But Jesus doesn't want it. He doesn't want separation from his Father. He doesn't want to receive the wrath that your sins and mines deserve. And so he says, let this cup pass. Not what I will, but what you will. Not my will, but let yours be done. You see, Jesus Christ himself wanted other than God's will. But yet he submitted his will to the will of the Father. And praise God he did because without Jesus going to the cross and soaking up the wrath that should have been soaked up by us, we would be lost and hopeless for all eternity. You know what despair feels like? Despair feels like there's nothing to live for. There's no future. There's nothing out ahead. There's no light, only darkness. Now imagine that for eternity. That's hell enough without flames. And Jesus says, I'll soak up all that despair, all that hopelessness, all the payment for their sin, and I'll do it willingly. And that was why he came. That's why he was born. So let's, let's remember all of this, that God accomplishes his will through your prayers. And that if you're not seeing your prayers being answered the way you want them to be, Perhaps he's saying, wait. Perhaps he's saying, no, I know better than you at this time. Trust me. So perhaps tonight he's saying to you, you need to pray more. You need to ask more. And you're going to see some fantastic things happen in your experience. We're going to pray together in the coming month publicly. And we're going to model together for each other how to pray and how to seek God's face. But for now, I want you to think... What is God telling you tonight? Is he, is he telling you, you need to pray some more? You need to come alone with me and get some more time with me. You need to remove your view that if I just believe enough, my prayers will be answered. So therefore, I must not be believing enough because my prayers aren't being answered. I mean, that's horrible. It's a terrible way to view God in prayer. And it's even more terrible to have people say to you, well, you're not healed because you don't have enough faith. That's terrible. It's blasphemous. not because you don't have enough faith. It's because God has a greater plan. It's because he's doing something in your life that you just can't see and that I can't see. And though we will, even Jesus himself said, not my will, but yours be done. And so it's a trust issue. Will you rest in God's sovereign care of you? He already died for you. Jesus Christ, God become man, has already given up his whole self for you. Will you trust him with your life? It's the question we need to ask. Let's celebrate what Jesus has done together. And I'm going to pray for us before we do that. I'm going to pray that God gives us more prayerful prayers, more times of real meeting with him, even if it's for five minutes or ten minutes, more times of praying together. I was talking on the phone with someone today from our church, and as soon as I hung up, I was convicted that I didn't pray with them. And so if I'm talking to you on the phone, you heard me say this, and, and, and I'm about to hang up, you're like, yo, let's pray. I will say thank you, because I forgot. Even for a minute. Let's just pray. Can we do that? If you talk to someone else in this congregation on the phone or in person, can, can you just end by praying for one another? It could be a minute. It could be two minutes. How much more prayerful would we be as a church if we committed to that? So let's pray and let's remember what Jesus has done for us. Father, thank you for this great, great reality of prayer. Father, we desire to to meet with you in the secret, together, publicly. Father, would you cleanse our motives for wrong prayer? Would you help us when we are praying in ways that are just empty words? Would you keep us focused when we seek to pray? And Father, would we not get discouraged when we do go to pray and we do quiet everything down and our minds are racing and it's hard to focus? Father, encourage us. I pray that we would not give up. Father, I pray that we would see your moving through our prayers, believing that prayer does change things, but it doesn't change your mind. Father, help us to pray according to your will so that we may cooperate in what you're doing in the world. 
Father, may we pray more prayers that are biblical, that are lined up with Scripture and the promises that you have revealed to us in your word. Father, I pray that as we meditate and leave this place, help us be our help. Help us as we remember what Jesus has done. May we truly meet with you. May our songs even be prayers of thanksgiving unto you. Thank you for your grace. We thank you for this season of prayer that is up and coming. Help us, I pray, that everyone would experience you, your face, and your moving in their lives. Move in us in the church. Grow us. Mature us. Help us, we pray. Everyone together said? Amen. Amen. Let it be.